Our reading this evening is from Revelation, starting at the beginning of chapter 4 through to the end of chapter 5. After this, I looked, and behold, a door standing open in heaven. And the first voice which I had heard, speaking to me like a trumpet, said, Come up here, and I will show you what must take place after this. At once I was in the Spirit, and behold, a throne stood in heaven, with one seated on the throne. And he who sat there had the appearance of Jasper and Carnelian, and around the throne was a rainbow that had the appearance of an emerald. Around the throne were twenty-four thrones, and seated on the thrones were twenty-four elders, clothed in white garments, with golden crowns on their heads. From the throne came flashes of lightning and rumblings and peals of thunder. And before the throne were burning seven torches of fire, which are the seven spirits of God. And before the throne there, as it were, a sea of glass like crystal. And around the throne, on each side of the throne, are four living creatures, full of eyes in front and behind. The first living creature like a lion, the second living creature like an ox, the third living creature with the face of a man, and the fourth living creature like an eagle in flight. And the four living creatures, each of them with six wings, are full of eyes all around and within, and day and night they never cease to say, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. And whenever the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to him who is seated on the throne, who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fall down before him who is seated on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever. They cast their crowns before the throne, saying, Worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things, and by your will they existed and were created. Then I saw in the right hand of him who was seated on the throne a scroll, written within and on the back, sealed with seven seals. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look into it. And I began to weep loudly, because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or to look into it. And one of the elders said to me, Weep no more. Behold, the Lion of the tribe of Judah, the Root of David, has conquered, so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. And between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain, with seven horns and with seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God, sent out into all the earth. And he went 
and took the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. And when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the Lamb, each holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song, saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation, and you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. Then I looked, and I heard around the throne and the living creatures and the elders the voice of many angels, numbering myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them, saying, to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb, be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. And the four living creatures said, Amen. And the elders fell down and worshipped. By the time John wrote this book of Revelation, he had seen his fair share of trouble So in his life preaching the gospel, he had seen one by one the other apostles, his co-workers being um, executed, killed off one by one, starting with his brother, James, in Acts 12. We can also see from his letters the sort of battles he had, trying to keep the churches on the straight and narrow, trying to shoot down false teaching. And now we find out in Revelation 1, in his later years, he's been exiled He's on the island of Patmos. So John wrote this book of Revelation from trouble, and it's pretty clear as we read it, he was expecting his readers to be reading it in trouble also. So have a look, please. Chapter 1, verse 9. I, John, your brother and partner in the tribulation and the kingdom and the patient endurance that are in Jesus, was on the island of Patmos on account of the word of God. According to John, that's the normal Christian life. We share in the kingdom of Jesus and also in the tribulation and the patient endurance. It's a funny mix, isn't it? The kingdom and tribulation and the patient endurance. Because that's what John had heard Jesus say. He'd written down in his gospel the words of the Lord Jesus, in this world you will have trouble. If the world hates you, bear in mind that it hated me first. And I think that's why this book was given visions from God through John to strengthen the people of God in their patient endurance. So Jesus says to him in in chapter 1, fear not, or we will read in chapter 5 the wonderful words, weep no more. Think about a Christian at work who's asked for their view on some hot moral issue of the day. You could take your pick with those. And she says what Christians believe, what, what she thinks. And now she's in hot water, socially, with others around her, and maybe even professionally also. Well, think about a young Christian 
who, who just feels bombarded by temptation, relentlessly squeezed into the mold of this world. It's a real uphill struggle to be known as a believer. Or think about a Christian in Iraq or certain parts of Syria, seen wearing a cross and then taken. This book was written by a suffering Christian for suffering Christians. It's God saying to his church, fear not, weep no more. Hang on in there in patient endurance. And it's more than just a pep talk. How this book works is it's more than just a pep talk with warm words, optimism to lift our spirits a little bit. How this book works is it reveals facts, which otherwise would be unseen. That word revelation that's used in chapter 1, verse 1, and from which we get the title of the book, it means an unveiling, a drawing back of the curtain. What is being unveiled? What is being revealed? Well, in part, it's the future. Um, Christians need to view their present circumstances and sufferings in the light of the future, and partly that's what this book is doing. So if you look at the first verse, 1 verse 1, John says this revelation was given by God to show his servants the things that must soon take place. He's talking about the future. Or um, on to the start of chapter 4 in our passage, a voice says to John, come up here and I will show you what must take place after this. Obviously, the future is hidden from us, but that's partly what this book reveals. But there's more to it than that. This book reveals not just the future, it reveals if I can put it like this, the spiritual reality behind, underneath the whole of life, past, present, and future. That's true. That's the claim of the Bible in this book, that underneath the whole of life, there is an unseen spiritual reality, usually invisible, with the Lord at work and evil opposing him, normally unseen, but revealed by this book. It came to John in in visions, um, these seem to have been kind of overwhelming experiences, and then he described them as best he could, and that's why the language is pictorial. It's uh, impressionistic, kind of straining, straining language, trying to describe these things that are so far beyond our ordinary experience. As John seeks to pass on these visions from God to encourage the church in patient endurance. What we saw last week in 1 to 3 was John's vision of the risen Jesus, a figure of tremendous glory, um, like the sun, he says, shining in full strength. And Jesus spoke seven messages for seven churches in that region of the Mediterranean that John was to write down and to pass on to them. That's what we saw last week. This week, the visions start up again. And John, if you look at 4 verse 1, he sees a door standing open in heaven, and a voice beckons to him to come and look. And as he does that, and as it were, we're looking over his shoulder, there are three things we're going to see. The throne, second, the scroll and the lamb, and then finally we'll see the praise. Those are the elements of John's vision, and from each one we'll learn a lesson for the patient endurance of God's people. So starting off then, John sees the throne in heaven, from which we learn that God rules over human history. Have a look at verse 2, please. 
At once I was in the Spirit, and behold, a throne stood in heaven with one seated on the throne. The rest of what John sees and describes in chapter 4 is the heavenly throne room. It's a vision of great glory if we work through it. So verse 3 talks about precious stones and glittering light, um, carnelian and jasper and sapphire and rainbow. I, um, I remember shopping for an engagement ring. It's a, a bewildering experience for a male. And um, uh, one of the jewelers let me look at a, at a stone through with a little magnifying glass that they have. And it's, wow, wow amazing, glittering, a thousand points of light in a perfect pattern. Just glittering. That's the sense of John's vision here. He, he can see the throne, but it's, he, can't, he sees a figure on it, but he doesn't describe them. There's just this light, glittering, glory. Around the throne, he sees 24 elders. Um, probably these represent the people of God. 12 tribes plus 12 apostles equals 24 elders. And they um, are seated on thrones of their own. They're crowned with gold. And we'll see a little bit later in the book how uh, this is um, the people of God reigning with him. But if you look at verse 10, these elders are worshiping as they throw their, their crowns before the Lord and bow down. Next, in verses 5 and 6, John talks about thunder and lightning coming from the throne of God, and a, a sea of glass, and seven torches standing before the throne, symbolizing the Spirit of God. You think about a world before CGI and IMAX, kind of thunder and lightning. This is as sensorily powerful and overwhelming as it gets. After that, there are four living creatures. Probably these are angelic beings, symbolizing Probably the highest and noblest things in all creation. So you have the lion, the king of beasts, the ox, the, the kind of strongest of all farm animals, the eagle, the greatest of all birds, and then a human being ruling over the rest. These seem to have been creatures of, in their own right, bewildering glory. And yet they themselves, again, are focused on God's throne, worshiping him, singing of his holiness. Now, in all these different aspects of the vision, the thing we need to notice is how everything is focused on the throne. If you look down at how it's written, all the other aspects are described in terms of their position relative to the throne. So the elders are around the throne. Uh, the thunder and lightning are coming from the throne. The uh, living creatures are around the throne. The sea and the lampstands are in front of the throne. Even God himself if you look at verse 3, when John describes him, he sees him. He doesn't name him, but he refers to him as he who sat on the throne, he who sat there. Fourteen times in all in this chapter, it's the throne that John is focused on, which I think shows us his point, which is that the Lord rules over human history. That's the point of a throne, isn't it? It's a symbol of rule, of authority and power, as the one who is seated speaks and his word, his rule, runs through his, his domain. That's what the Lord was showing to his readers through this vision of John, that there is a throne in heaven, and it is not empty. God rules over human history. It must not always have seemed like that, with John on Patmos, exiled, 
with the churches in a mess, which is what we see in the letters of, of chapters 2 and 3, that just like now, the churches then were racked by lukewarmness and false teaching and hypocrisy and all the rest of it, opposition. Later on in the book as well, we'll see all the descriptions of a world in turmoil and chaos, not chaos. At once I was in the Spirit, and behold, a throne stood in heaven with one seated on the throne. Behind and above everything that happens in this world, above and behind everything we see, the Lord is seated on his throne. That's what John saw and what he tells us here. If you're, um, I should say, if you're skeptical about this or you know, you're not yet a Christian, you're thinking things through, I'd want to say that Revelation probably isn't the first book I would choose to try to persuade you of God's power and rule. In a way, it's a kind of mystical book. It only records the experience of one man after all. But what I would want to say, though, is that this is backed up by books of the Bible, not least John's own account of the life of Jesus earlier on, that are not mystical but historical, that show us the public evidence of the power, the rule of Jesus Christ in his life, his miracles, his resurrection. That's where I would look to to persuade. I think the, the point of this here is not to persuade us intellectually, but to impress us emotionally with this revealing of the fact that God rules over human history. Which, of course, raises hard questions for suffering Christians. Michael Nazir Ali um, who used to be an Anglican bishop, was interviewed on Radio 4 shortly after um, Easter, the dreadful attack on the play park in Pakistan, in Lahore. I don't know if you remember that. Um, Michael Nazir Ali, he was born in Pakistan. He has dual citizenship. He used to be a bishop over there, and um, he used to serve that community, the Christians there, who apparently had been targeted in that dreadful attack on the children's play park. And the interviewer on Radio 4 asked him, how could your God let this happen? And that's a fair question. How could your God let this happen? But think about it from the other point of view. Imagine you're a Pakistani Christian feeling threatened by violence, not exactly full of confidence about the protection, the justice you will get from your government. Or imagine you'd been personally affected by that bombing. John's message is not that that's bad luck. You know, bad luck. You're in the wrong place at the wrong time. John's message is not that human justice is the best thing you can put your hope in. John's message is that there is a God reigning over history. And while he is not responsible for evil, he is sovereign over it. That in his wisdom and in his patience with a wicked world, he allows, for now, his people to experience tribulation. How could your God let this happen? This vision doesn't give us an easy answer to that, but it shows us a God of holiness whose moral purity is not in doubt. It shows us a God who is so far beyond our own experience and understanding, our comprehension, that it's no surprise that his ways are higher than our ways and his thoughts higher than our thoughts and not simple. It shows us a God with power, enough 
to put things right in the end. He shows us a God who is utterly worthy of our trust. And so this vision helps suffering Christians, doesn't it, to endure patiently. What about us, though? Um, I guess the opposition, the stuff we face is less extreme than that, than Christians in other parts of the world. But it's not different in kind. We too need to hear that God is enthroned. And so there are no accidents, no surprises, nothing that he has not sanctioned and cannot use. If people who oppose truth seem to have the upper hand, we mustn't panic. If the church locally or nationally looks to be a mess, we mustn't panic. We spend a lot of time worrying about how things are going to turn out. God spends no time worrying about that. Or think about those elders in verse 10 who, who represent the people of God. As they bow down and cast their crowns before this throne of God, as they bow in adoration in that moment, what are they worried about? Not very much. I think that's the first part and the first point of this. John sees a throne. God rules over human history. Second, moving into chapter 5, John also sees the scroll and the lamb. And the lesson for us here, I think, is that the cross is the focus of God's plans. The cross is the focus of God's plans. This bit is um, slightly more difficult for us to understand. It's, it's not just a sight that hits us now. There is action, and we need to understand what's going on. Um, so 5 verse 1, John sees a scroll in the hands of God. Uh, it's a scroll with writing on both sides, which is unusual. In the ancient world, you would normally just have written on one side and then kind of rolled it up. Um, the scroll also has seven seals, which we need to think about. A seal is kind of, you know, olden days, you have a letter. You can't lick the envelope. You have to put some wax over the join, and then you stamp it with your signet ring or, you know, a seal, something like that, and it, it forms a little, like your personal symbol. Um, and it's a way of showing that it comes from you, because it's, it's your seal, and only you have got that. It shows that it's, it's come from you, and it shows that it hasn't been opened, because when, when you want to open the seal, you have to break the seal. You, know, you can't steam it open, or it's, um, you, know, you can't uh, tamper with it. It's, it's about authority. It's about authority. So often, um, official documents in the ancient world would have had these seals, and only somebody suitably qualified and uh, suitably um, dignified would have been able to open the seal. So Patmos City Council get a letter from the Roman authorities of, of Asia Minor, and, and how do they know it's official? Well, because it's got the official seal. And how do they know it hasn't been opened on the way and, and altered by the messengers because the seals aren't broken? And the messenger, even if he's feeling nosy, he can't just have a peek inside. Only the mayor of Patmos can open the seals. Only he has authority to do that. That's the kind of world we're in. So God has this scroll, and it's written on both sides, and it's sealed, seven seals. What is it, though? What does it symbolize? Well, I think it's, it, it's meant to be that the scroll of history, 
God's, God's plan for history. Let me explain why I say that. Um, remember chapter 4, verse 1. John is invited up into heaven to see the things that must soon take place. He's going to see God's plans for history. And then um, that's what unfolds in the book. As the seven seals are open, opened from, from chapter 6 onwards, that's as this vision of the future begins to unfold, as we see what the Lord will do in history, what he has in mind. Does that make sense? Um, so through into chapter 8, it all begins to unfold. Seven seals, and then seven trumpets, and then seven bowls. But that unfolding all begins here as the scroll begins to be opened. It's, it's the scroll of history. It's going to show us what God is going to do in the world. I think that also makes sense of the idea that it's written on both sides. Um, that's a way of saying that that it's God's full and final plan. There's no room for any additions or anything new because it's all down there. He's got it all worked out. Right. Well, that was a lot of explanation. It sets us up to understand what's going on here in chapter 5. Let's have a look. John sees this scroll in the hand of the one who is seated on the throne. It's sealed with seven seals, and there's no one who can open it. There's no one who is worthy. Remember, it's, it's an issue of authority. You know, it's not like a jam jar. It, um, it's on too tight and no one can open it. It's, there's nobody with the authority to open the scroll of history. And John begins to weep. In verse 4, it's a bit, a bit embarrassing. He's, he's weeping loudly. And it's not because he's nosy and he really wants to find out what God's plans are. It's it's different. I think what this weeping shows us is that the opening of the scroll is not just about the revealing of God's plans for history. It's the enacting of them. Does that make sense? I think um, with official scrolls in the ancient world, like orders or, or a, a will, you know, somebody's will when they die, those would only be enacted once the scroll was properly opened. And so if this scroll isn't opened. If it can't be opened, then God's plan is stalled. It's like it's stuck in the breach. And that's why John weeps. His whole life had been lived in the hope and service of the gospel. He would have been longing to see God act in history. But maybe, maybe that's not going to happen because there is nobody worthy to open the scroll. But then, verse 5 we hear these wonderful words. One of the elders said to me, Weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. John hears this description of the Lord Jesus, the lion of the tribe of Judah. And then he looks, verse 6, and sees before the throne a lamb standing as if it had been slain. The elders, the creatures who had been around the throne, worship the Lamb. They worship the Lord Jesus. They sing that He is worthy to open the scroll. For you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God. Then from verse 11, if, if you look down, the, the praise of the Lamb gets greater and greater. A multitude of angels joins in. Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. 
the unfolding of God's plans are all linked back to the cross where Jesus died. The thing that makes the Lamb, the Lord Jesus, worthy of praise, worthy to open this scroll, to set God's plans in motion, are all linked back to the cross. Because it's, it's the cross where Jesus died to give life to God's people. It's at the cross where God's enemies were defeated as Satan, who held our sin against us, to thwart God's purposes, to keep God's people from him. But that price is paid, and Satan is defeated at the cross. You are worthy to open the scroll because you were slain. As history unfolds, it unfolds from the cross, which is the center of God's plans. I think that's the point of this. But what's the point for suffering Christians, for them then and for us now? Well, I think it's this. I think it reminds us what kind of kingdom we are part of if we're Christians. And it reminds us what, at least what the Lord thinks of as being truly worthy of praise and glory. We tend to value strength. We, uh, we like winning and winners. And Jesus is strong. He's the Lion of Judah. But at the same time, he's the slaughtered lamb. And in fact, in this vision, it's almost as if some of his lionness, you know, his worthiness, is actually predicated on his lambness. He is worthy. He is praised because he was slain. As Christians, we follow that kind of king, a king who laid down his life, a king who was obedient to his father even at the greatest cost. His victory was seen as he was misrepresented, mistreated, and killed. It's not just that the cross was a necessary evil. In the heavenly throne room, that's what they are celebrating as his greatest moment his greatest achievement. I think that challenges our thinking sometimes when we are more inclined to celebrate our victories, when a Christian wins the argument, when that hostile group backs down and the church's plans go forward, when things turned out exactly the way we had in mind. We mustn't be perverse about it, but I, I wonder whether this vision challenges that a little bit. As Peter could say in his letter, if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. The lionness of Jesus is intimately linked to his lambness. That's the sort of kingdom we are part of if we're Christians, as we see from the second part of John's vision, the cross is the focus of God's plans. And then finally, finally, the third thing for us here this evening, um, it's not so much part of what John saw, but what he heard. I think that's the third element here. We've seen the throne, the scroll and the lamb, and then finally, the praise. The praise, which shows us that this universe is ultimately 
a place of worship. Have a look down. Five times John describes the words of praise that he heard in that heavenly vision. In chapter 4, the living creatures say, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. Then the elders join in. They say, Worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things, and by your will they were created and exist. Then in chapter 5, they sing, Worthy are you, talking about the Lamb, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. And then it all turns into more of a a kind of shout, an exultant shout. Worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And then fifth, finally, to him who sits on the throne and to the lamb be blessing, honor, glory, and might forever and ever. Now, what's the point of this for us? I think partly it is supposed to be a model for our own response to our apprehension of this God. Um, Rightly, in church, we emphasize that worship um, isn't boiled down to services. This is not not really what we're here for. Um, It can't be boiled down to, to singing and what we say. Worship's how we live. That's what the Bible says. But this vision and this praise here helpfully reminds us of the emotional prostration that is part of the true worship of God. There should be something in our Christian experience that is, so to speak, face down. There should be something that is face down about our worship of God, bowing before Him, awed by the Lamb who shed His blood for us. It's something that's easy to lose, isn't it? Maybe as you think about your quiet times or how you pray, is that genuinely worshipful? Or in our daily lives, as we cast our crowns before this God in submission, is there this sense of bowing down before a holy God? But even more than our response, our personal worship, I think what this is meant to do is to give us, rather to give the suffering church a picture of the worship of all things. Have a look at verse 13, please, of chapter 5. This really surprised me. I really had to think about this. To him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be blessing, honor, glory, and might forever and ever. Now, the point is, who is saying that? Look at the verse. Every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the seas and everything in them. In other words, everything, everyone. The natural state of this universe is to praise and worship the God who made it and who will one day redeem it. Often as Christians, especially, I guess, as suffering Christians, 
it's easy to get the sense that we're the kind of the odd ones out, you know, a bit a bit weird. Not so. There is a sense in which the whole universe reverberates with the praise of this God. There is nothing more natural than the praise of this God, nothing more mainstream than the worship of God, nothing more obvious than the worship of this God. It's a bit of a puzzle where this fits in the kind of the timeline of Revelation, because later on we very much see a world that's in rebellion, a universe that is not all singing God's praises and going His way. I think perhaps this vision stands outside of that sweep of time that the book will go on to show us. After all, this is before the scroll has been opened. It's expressing the most basic reality that exists as the veil is lifted, that this universe is ultimately, fundamentally, a place of worship. All this then is what John saw. The visions that God showed him that he would write to strengthen his church into patient endurance. He saw the throne. He saw the scroll and the lamb. He heard the praise of heaven. Let's pause for a moment in silence and then I'll, I'll lead us together in a prayer. Worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things, and by your will they existed and were created. Worthy are you, Lamb of God, to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain. And by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. To him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be blessing and honor, glory and might forever and ever. Amen.